Welcome to this special Conversations Shelter in Place episode of the Orbital Perspective Podcast. Where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. T-minus 17 seconds and counting. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, go for main engine start, main engine start, 2, 1, Booster ignition and liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery, returning to the space station, paving the way for future missions beyond. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Conversations Sheltered in Place. Um, I hope this finds everybody healthy and happy and safe and navigating the crisis known as 2020. Um, This is going to be a really... uh, this is going to be a really exciting, really impactful uh, conversation because, um, as I've said on, on previous uh, conversations that we've had, uh, I truly believe that we are right now in the midst of the great transition, that we are transitioning between potentially two ma- human epochs, really, if you think about it. And um, one of the big uh, catalysts for this transition is going to be business. It's going to be business enterprise. And Business enterprise has the incredible power to either destroy our world by clinging to all the 
uh, the mindset, the two-dimensional mindset of the old human epoch, a mindset centered on, on competition and conquest and profit maximization at all costs, or business enterprise can help save the world and usher in this new human epoch by embracing uh, collaboration and interdependence and and uh, basically operating within the context of the real world, the, the deeply uh, interdependent uh, exponential <laughs> real world. Nature is exponential. And uh, exponential is, is going to be a focus of our conversation today uh, because we are facing an exponential threat known as COVID-19. And so any exponential threat uh, can only be overcome and, and conquered through uh, an exponential organization, an exponential uh, game plan. And uh, my guest today is an expert on exponential game plans. It's Emily Sidney Smith. Uh, and Emily is the CEO of ExoWorks, which is a corporate transformation consultancy, which helps organizations protect themselves against disruption, incorporate the attributes shared by the world's fastest growing companies, and builds new business lines that can grow exponentially. She works with Fortune 500 companies and smaller clients to prepare them to survive and thrive in an era of accelerating change. She helped grow an Australian startup to a $300 million valuation, and she spent a decade on Wall Street working in venture capital, reviewing many potential investments each year, giving her incredible insight into uh, emerging trends and, and particularly exponential emerging trends. So everybody, please help me welcome all the way from Sydney, Australia, Emily Sydney Smith. Hey, Emily. Hi, Ron. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. How's it going in the, in the early morning there uh, in Sydney? <laughs> well, we're really lucky here in Sydney because um, COVID is not so bad for us, but it's tough to see the world going through such times. Right, right. Well, I want to I, thanks for joining, and I want to remind everybody that this is not just a conversation between Emily and I. It's a it's a conversation amongst all of us. And so, jump in with your comments and questions. Be a part of this conversation, and uh, and um, I think it'll be a, a much richer experience for everybody. So, Emily, tell us a little bit about your path, how you got to ExoWorks, what ExoWorks is, uh, and why exponential organizations are so important. Great. Well, actually, I was a bit of a closet geek because I figured that even though I loved technology, I was a female who didn't have an engineering degree. And having just read most of your book, I can tell that, you know, that engineering degree is something that's so important to a lot of people. And But I was reading a technology book every week and wanting to play. And eventually I realized that I had self-educated myself enough that I was allowed to. And then I read Salim Ismail's book, Exponential Organizations, that just resonated so much. I happened to meet him at a conference a couple of weeks later and said, Salim, I'd love to come and work with you. And um, he said, actually, we really need someone who's got an energy background for our upcoming uh, sprint. And I've never looked back. I, I became CEO of the company 18 months ago. And it is such a wonderful thing to be going into very large companies that are often really struggling to understand what this um, innovation is happening all around them. Um, you know, there's a lot of books and um, information that tells people what the end state of being an exponential organization is and very little to actually say, how do you get there? And so it's just a real privilege to be one of the few groups that's actually going into these large organizations and trying to make it really clear how to get there, working with fantastic staff within those companies to really inspire them and really bring some purpose back to those companies. 
Yeah, and uh, ExoWorks, if you if you want to find them on the internet, is exo, exo.works, W-O-R-K-S. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding about ExoWorks is you do focus on the bigger companies. Um, and the bigger companies are at the greatest disadvantage right now uh, because everything is changing so fast. The entire business landscape is changing so fast. And so there's a great advantage to the smaller, more nimble, more flexible companies. And the big dinosaurs, uh, you know, can't really get turned fast enough, you know, or, or to put it in fighter pilot turns, you got a big, big giant bomber <laughs> or tanker and, you know, can't turn as fast as a fighter, right? So, you, so, so you're basically trying to help big companies act more like a startup to be more flexible. Um, and, and in doing so, I, I guess that's when you can find these, these exponential business lines that you, that you can jump on. Can you talk about that? What, what is it? I mean, for people who don't know really what an exponential business is, what, what it, can you describe that? So if you look at the Apples, the Googles, the Amazons, Facebooks of the world, there would be fantastic examples of exponential organisations, those fastest growing companies in the world that actually have also turned a profit. And um, so when we really try and get some of these larger companies to think like those, they actually need to get beyond the idea that innovation is only to bring in digital software that every one of their competitors have. I mean, I love Salesforce and SAP, but everyone has them. It doesn't set any of these companies apart. We see all these companies that have actually got stuck in the middle. So they've actually done a little bit to, um, to say, okay, well, we need to bring some more people into decision-making processes to get a bit digital. And yet it's actually created much more complexity and basically strife for them. We now see, you know, everyone needing to get involved with decisions and therefore we get this complete inertia. No one makes any decision at all. Um, or we say, okay, well, let's actually have this um, ecosystem. So they all now want an ecosystem of people that can bring in new ideas or um, look at startups to bring in. But they generally crush those startups if they go and work with them or they actually don't change any of their systems. So it still takes months to get through procurement, through just the basic NDA process. And that can absolutely kill any of those small companies that need to be nimble. And so we actually need to take those companies from that sort of middle stage where it's just not working to actually something that's functional and genuinely agile. Right. And so, I mean, I, I guess one of the, one of the ways that businesses are going to either succeed or fail is there is related to their ability to forecast and adapt to coming mega trends, right? I mean, there's so many examples of companies that did that wrong, right? You know, you can look at Blockbuster and they didn't see the the emerging mega trend of the internet, right? And um, or or a better maybe a better example is Kodak with digital photography, where they didn't see the mega trend of digital photography, even though they invented <laughs> or had a had a pretty big hand in inventing digital photography. And I, I think and we could talk about this a little bit, but I think humility is a big part of being able to be uh, flexible and adaptable. You know, in a lot of cases, these big companies think they already have the answer. 
the, even even when they recognize megatrends, right? You know, I'm sure there was lots of people working at Blockbuster said, we understand the internet, we have a website, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, with Kodak, you know, we understand digital photography, we invented it. Uh, but no, you don't really understand, you might understand the technical aspects of it, but you don't understand the megatrend that's coming. And so, um, you know, what, what, how did, where does humility fall into this? And, and, um, and the, especially with these big companies? Well, it's so incredibly important. And I come out of the energy industry that I see is really, really starting to have a major problem. And it's actually the humility that says, okay, well, let it, us look at those exponential curves that are happening in other parts of the industry. Wow, solar is absolutely taking off. Um, the, there's an exponential increase in um, uptake, there's an exponential decrease in price, and this is going to become the, the major source of energy around the world. Um, and yet there's this sort of feeling of, especially in the oil and gas um, area, that it's been so cyclical that we must just be in a down part of the cycle. I completely disagree. And so it's only being humble and actually looking around to those bigger trends that is really important. But it's also being humble in terms of saying there's actually, you know, the reason that we have jobs is to actually solve customer problems. And if we look at ways of doing things that are 10 times better at actually solving those customer problems, which is what these exponential organisations do, then we might actually solve that in a completely different way. So let's actually be humble enough to say, okay, just because we think that we're a telco, we think we sell, you know, widgets or, or insurance, is that actually what we do? What do we actually solve for customers? And why don't we actually think differently and say, if we were actually improving the lives of millions or billions of people, how would we go about doing that? What would be the product um, that would both help them and um, make a lot of money be? Yeah, and I, I guess there are some success stories too. Here's one from Thomas Delora saying that Microsoft was smart enough to recognize the megatrend of the internet and pivot towards it. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of lots of other examples of that. Um, but, I, you know, I... There are a lot of mega trends coming. I mean, maybe we should talk about that. Um, and you know, I see I see on the horizon some some really big ones. You know, one is environmentalism, right? Is you know, almost everybody on the planet realizes realizes that infinite growth is not possible on a planet of finite resources, right? You cannot continue to increase your your nation's GNP or GDP year after year, you can't have that being the measure of success forever, forever, right? Eventually, eventually you run out of resources, eventually you run out of the life support systems to maintain life on the planet. But the issue is, and this goes back to humility and what we were just talking about, is there's many, many companies that think, oh, I understand this. I understand, yep, we, we understand how, what global, you know, that we need to change for global, uh, because of global warming. We understand about the, the finite, uh, you know, we can't have resource, unlimited resource exploitation forever. Um, but I don't think they actually do understand. I, I mean, I, I, in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, I don't think, uh, organizations uh, do because they don't act like they do, right? They might have, you know, CS, you know, CSR departments. They might have sustainability departments, um, you know, stovepiped in their organization. But I think one of the growing megatrends is is a second wave of environmentalism, for that, and that's probably not the right word. That's because that word is, uh, I think, been downtrodden and you and overused. But but a, a megatrend of the awareness of the fact that we live on a on a finite planet 
that we have to protect the life support systems of our planet, that the, the global economy is the wholly owned subsidiary of our biosphere, not the other way around, that, you know, we, we cannot exploit resources in a vacuum. We can't, you know, so, so yes, I think a lot of companies understand that already to some extent, but not to the extent that they need to. So that just as an example, I just threw that out as one coming mega trend. Um, what, what, what else, if you want to, do you want to talk about that or any other mega trends that you see coming? Yeah, I think that um, when we actually start to link people back to that purpose and the companies back to that purpose and say, well, you know, why do we exist as a company and maybe how do we improve the lives of millions of people? That then becomes a bit of a Trojan horse to actually say, well, are we being good stewards? And so we're trying to use that as a method to, to get there. But we're seeing all sorts of other megatrends. So, for instance, our understanding of economics is fundamentally breaking down. Um, you know, the, the economics that we based our world on for the last, um, well, since the 70s really doesn't make sense. It hasn't shown to be true in the data. Uh, you know, we've, in the last 20 years, pumped $170 trillion of debt into, well, now at that point, and yet um, there's only been $33 trillion worth of GDP growth for that. So five times as much debt for, um, for GDP growth. This is absolutely fake growth. <laughs> Yeah. And there are all these companies that just figure that they're going to come out the other side of COVID and they're going to have this same sort of uplift. Right. You know, there have been billions of people who have come out of poverty and had spending power over the last um, couple of decades, which has um, you know, really helped a lot of companies. COVID is going to unfortunately reverse a lot of that. And so we're also saying to companies, gosh, if you think that all these exogenous factors are just going to keep lifting you, um, this is not the case. You know, we see so many of these companies that their real growth has actually been completely anemic. It's all been financial wizardry that actually makes them look like they're doing really well. Exactly. And so they're going to genuinely need to improve what they're doing and improve how they're helping people through their products and services if they're going to survive. Yeah, I, I think I, I think maybe to put an umbrella over a, a whole bunch of megatrends is the megatrend of a, a more knowledgeable uh, consumer group. <laughs> you know, the, the public, the public is going to demand uh, certain behavior from the folks that they're going to buy products and services from. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's no longer uh, going to be good enough to, to not cause harm or, or to cause little harm. You have to be restorative. I mean, I think that the successful companies of the future and the present are going to be those companies that, that are, are leading us towards a positive, restorative future, uh, uh, not just maintaining the status quo, because the status quo is, uh, is not working. Um, well, and I often think about whether I actually want to be working with these large companies, because in so many ways, there are so many issues to get over. And yet they've got such scale that if we can actually get them moving in the right direction, they have that huge impact. Right. Um, you know, I'm often reminded of a fantastic story that um, Thomas Khalil um, told me, who was working with the last two Democratic White Houses on the big... Um, uh, moonshot kind of ideas. And they went to Walmart and said, don't give us money. Actually go and tell your supply chain that you want them to do things. And so they actually said, well, we need you to prove that you've cut emissions by this much within this amount of time or we won't buy from you. And so they had this enormous impact because, of course, no one was going to say no to that um, with actually very little um, investment from their own side. And so if we can get those large companies doing really great things, 
um, we can not only stop them from failing, which I think would be a very dangerous thing for this world because they're such huge employers, um, but it would also really distract from getting the UN Sustainability Development Goals done. So we actually need to have them stabilized and successful. Right. I mean, that's that's a good example. And, you know, another part of that, uh, our complementary, I, I guess, example is is in finance itself, right? Because, I mean, we met at, at an event at the UN and, uh, you know, uh, I've been involved with the UN for quite some time now to try and help steer investment uh, towards the Sustainable Development Goals, for instance, right? And um, and you've you've spent a decade in finance and on Wall Street, you know, steering investments, right? And you know, there there's so many examples of of really conscientious folks that are and and businesses that are doing the right thing, uh, but their investments are in the wrong investments, right? And and if you're investing in a company or even in a mutual fund that invests in a company that's causing, you know, considerable harm to the planet, then you're part of the problem. And investment is the rocket fuel uh, for business and business is, is, you know, the power to destroy or, or, or save the, the planet, right? And so, you know, what we do with our investment dollars, whether we're an organization or an individual or a company or a corporation is, is really important too. And, and you brought up a really good example with uh, you know, the, with, with the supply chain, which is another, you know, maybe maybe it is obvious, but maybe not obvious to everybody uh, how much of a difference you can make by making small changes, even in that. In that. So, um, yeah. And, and we love what some of the companies that we've been working with have been doing. So, for instance, we've been working with a large um, medical device company in their Latin American division. And for them, they could see that 10% of people in that region actually have good quality healthcare access. And so not only is that a big um, uh, block, uh, blocker to their profitability, but they really want to help people who are um, you know, needing that healthcare. And so they realised that, for instance, it's really tough for a regional doctor to actually go to a big city, which is very expensive for them, taking time off from their practice to go and get training. And you can't really do proper training on things like heart stents um, just by video. And so they realized that actually if they could bring in virtual reality, they could get a really good quality education that's completely distributed to those um, regional and remote areas. And so suddenly they're getting 20 times as many people through their training um, at 95% less cost only six months after deciding to do so. And so you can have these huge um, effects by actually investing very little and suddenly you're doing something wonderful for people as well as building your profitability. And we're seeing more and more of these stories that are really exciting us. Uh, you know, there's a new company that has been started by a number of very large, uh, very um, senior people from large companies to go after alternative protein, which has some wonderful effects on the, the environment um, and certainly stopping cruelty to animals. And they've got a lot of money behind them. They can do this at scale and they are absolutely being built as an exponential organization with this sense of purpose and the SDG goals absolutely embedded. And so it's just incredibly exciting to see also what some of these corporate um, ideas, uh, where they can take us. Yeah. So, so um, as I understand that the focus of ExoWorks is on the larger companies because they, they have the, the, the scale to, to really make a, a huge difference uh, in, in the world. And so a question I have, 
Uh, and this is this is one that's really been I've, I've been grappling at for a long time to try and figure out what's the way around this is many, if not all the comp- big companies that you work with, the leadership that you're working with is legally bound to for sure to maximize shareholder value. Right. That is their number one thing that they have to do. And anything that any decision that they take that can be viewed as, you know, causing harm to shareholder value like investing in environmental things or, or social impact type things um, is, is going to be something that they're going to have to deal with. And, you know, it's hard when you, you get one or two hands tied behind your back to move a company, steer a company in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a direction. I mean, the perfect example is, is, you know, the Ford Motor Company, I think it was 1917, if I'm not mistaken, where, where Henry Ford wanted to pay his workers higher wages and the Dodge brothers sued him uh, because they were shareholders in the company. And they, he, they basically made the point that if you give them more wages, you're taking money out of our pocket. That's our money and that you can't do that. Right. And so and the Supreme Court upheld that decision. Right. And so so um, that's what CEOs are up against right now. So how do you how do you deal with that? How do you how do you navigate that? Well, it's easy to be depressed by that, but actually there's a lot that can be done. And so, first of all, when you do refocus on how do we want to improve the lives of millions or billions of people, actually there's so much evidence that that does flow to profits that we can actually really convince um, CEOs to, to get on board. There are also so many other little things, like if you actually inspire people within the company because people are so used to just changing jobs every few years and often to their competitors. And so they're not actually um, truly um, loyal to their existing um, organisation. But if you truly inspire them by that massive transformative purpose, they're more likely to stay. There's an enormous cost to having this huge turnover of staff. And so again and again, we actually can show that it's very profitable to be doing good we actually just need to give them the path and show them a few first times that it really works and then they get on that um, merry-go-round themselves that they can just keep on applying that. Um, So we come back to companies that we worked with five years ago and see what they're still doing with that kind of ideology and that it's actually permeated the the whole company and and the culture. And that really excites us. So, so I guess the issue is, yes, it it can be, you can show that it's, it's profitable to do good, but it's also profitable to appear to do good. And it's a lot cheaper to just appear to do good than it is to actually do good. And so, you know, how do you deal with companies that, are greenwashing or, or, you know, they put their CSR in a stovepipe. They, you know, they, they, they have these great impact reports every year, but you know, they're all inflated and, and, you know, the harm that they, they don't even make up for the harm that they're causing. Right. So in a net, if you look at the whole business operation over the entire corporation, it is a huge net negative, but they got this little teeny piece that's positive that doesn't come, doesn't even make a dent in offsetting that, but that's, you know, they spend, they spend, 10 times as much money advertising the good that they're, they're doing than, than it costs to do the, the actual good. So how do you deal with those companies? Because, well, because, I, I mean, because the shareholders will push back on you and say, no, we don't have to do good. I mean, if they're being honest, they would say, no, we don't have to do good. We just have to appear to be doing good. 
I think that um, the companies that come first to mind that are doing that are the ones that are also first in my mind as the most likely to fail. The ones that have really been propping themselves up through financial things, not actually where we're delivering a great um, product to our customers that was properly differentiated and truly addressing their needs. And so I think we're going to actually see a lot of those companies really struggle and fall by the wayside because they've been pretending to not only help their, their customers, but um, but do that good. And so um, not across the board. Look, there are going to be companies that we need to really um, try and change them in other ways. But I do see a real um, linkage between those that are genuinely doing good and that are genuinely able to actually uh take on these new um, themes and opportunities and bring in new technologies and really inspire their staff because of what they're doing well um, and hopefully be the, the biggest companies in the future. Okay. Let's, let's dive in a little bit more into the definition of exponential organizations because I bet there's probably still some confusion out there on, on what exactly what we mean. Can you give some examples of like, you know, the difference between a linear organization and an exponential organization? Absolutely. So, um, by the way, the, the founder of our company, Silly Mismail, about five years ago, wrote a book about this. Um, it's now one of the best-selling business books of all time called Exponential Organizations. But he said, okay, well, there is this whole new breed of companies out there, the Amazons, the Googles, that are just acting so differently. There's actually an entirely new business model here. And so let's look at whether there's actually something shared between them that they're doing. And it turns out that there are 11 things that are shared. Um, so, you know, whether it's having staff on demand and leveraging assets, using algorithms in different ways, um, you know, having real engagement with the community. And so all of those things come together um, into these companies that are growing in a completely different way. So they're very aut autonomous with how they um, work with their staff. They're really trusting people and they're creating um, a real sort of flywheel effect like Amazon has of actually self-reinforcing um, success where everyone, their customers, their suppliers are all being successful with them. Um, and so we're seeing these companies also think a lot about technology and what can be brought in because we're seeing so many of these new technologies um, that are um, improving dramatically. So they're improving exponentially. Their cost is coming down dramatically. Um, we often think of them as um, you know, not quite ready for prime time, and yet so quickly they will be. There are about 15 technologies that we thought would become ubiquitous in the next three to five years' time, whether it's being flying cars and virtual reality and 3D printing. In fact, we're seeing a tipping point this year because of COVID. And most of those technologies, when we see that there's a digital aspect, there are monopolies created. And so we're seeing, saying to a lot of companies, look, if you think that you want to be part of this future of this industry that's being created, you probably need to make that decision this year and get in before someone else um, actually becomes the, the monopolist um, in that area. So let's, how about we shift away from business just for a couple of minutes and, and, Talk about COVID nineteen and the and the response to COVID nineteen because we you know we started out this conversation or I started out the conversation talking about how a virus is an example of an exponential threat right and in order to to counter an exponential threat you need an exponential organization you need an exponential response to an exponential threat right 
So I know I'm, I'm, I might be putting you on the spot because this is outside of your area of expertise, but is, can you give examples of the difference between an exponential response to COVID-19 and a linear response to COVID-19? Yeah, actually, we've been really excited and I'm so proud to be an Australian on this one. So we actually looked at the Australian government's COVID response and it's actually the best example of applying the exponential organisation's attributes that we've ever seen. And so, in fact, if a government in the worst crisis that we've seen in so many generations in a couple of days or weeks can put together the best example, then no other organisation on earth frankly, has an excuse. But what they did was they said, well, we actually recognise that there are all these groups out there in the community who actually are expert at viruses and um, epidemics. And so we're going to trust them. We're going to bring all that information into a centralised place, real time, and make decisions real time, and then get very clear, concise information out to the public. And so we've had a huge amount of um, support from the opposition party as well, that they really got on board and said, let's just do this and trust the science. Um, there's been a lot of um, uh, the public uh, really accepting the information where we haven't seen that in a lot of other countries. And it's not perfect. It, you know, there's obviously problems, but the problems are so minor compared to what we're seeing in so many countries. And so that real exponential thinking around it and bringing in um, so many technologies and things around it and really trusting the science has been wonderful to see. And I think that we've brought so much complexity into so many organisations that decision-making gets really tough and we're seeing that also in countries that are really struggling because there are so many different layers of government and they're not speaking to each other. Um, and everything has just gone haywire. And so that level of communication that happens because you've got really strong dashboards and interfaces between all the groups that are meant to be talking, it gives you this really nice underpinning, this sort of fundamental, you're allowed to have fights, you're allowed to disagree with each other, but you've actually got a framework to actually get through that fight and then go and do something positive with the information. Yeah, that's you bring out some really good points there. That I'll bring up. I'll bring this discussion back. Not that I'm leading the discussion. This is just a conversation between two friends. But I'll take. I'll take. I'll, I'll take a little bit of uh, <laughs> uh, artistic license here and steer us back towards business because what you what you brought out is the is the importance of profound collaboration. Right? Is um, at which in in a crisis. Uh, is or in a hostile environment, and we all live in a hostile environment right there, is really what we teach in expeditionary behavior in the space business, right? In expeditionary behavior in the space business, everybody on the team, everybody on the crew is there to achieve the mission, right? And the first the first mission is to survive in a hostile environment, uh, but then there's, you know, going to be overarching. And in every case, you know, there might be differences of opinion, there might be different individual needs that people have, but everybody is seeing their own needs their own desires in the context of the overarching big picture that the team is going to survive and that our that our uh, mission is going to be accomplished successfully. And so um, what we're seeing in some places around the world, including in the U.S., is the loss of that expeditionary mindset, of the loss of the bigger picture, right, of the bigger picture being we need to get through this together. We need to bring everybody together. It's not whether my political party or your political party actually solved the problem or gets credit for solving the problem, it's that we need to do this together. And so, so how this, I think, relates to business is 
you know, the overarching mission of any business should be, you know, putting forth the needs uh, or, or solving and, and um, meeting the needs of society, right? And, and operating in harmony with our planet's biosphere. That should be the overarching goal of the thing. And, um, you know, everything else should be, uh, all the other objectives, including shareholder value and everything else, should be in the context of that overarching objective, survival. Survival of the company, you can't have a company on a planet that can't sustain life for humans. I mean, the first victim of global warming is the economy. I mean, I mean, this it shouldn't take a rocket scientist that, that, but but I think part of the problem is that it requires folks to think not only short term but long term at the same time. I mean, you have to you have to keep short term in focus, but you have to do that at the same time uh, as we keep it in, in the long focus in. We could dolly zoom to coin a coin a term in the book. <laughs> Well, I have to mention your book because I've been lucky enough. Thank you so much for sharing your draft with me on Tuesday. I'm almost through it. And wow, it is such a fantastic book. I just couldn't put it down. And there are so many stories in there that really talk about that collaboration from being a fighter jet pilot and, you know, going into the war and really having to rely on people so much. Um, you know, right through the um, you know, living on the bottom of the ocean um, in a very tough but such a beautiful environment and, and your love for the, um, the ocean and the fish outside and, and then those are spectacular moments out in space. I, I went to sleep last night dreaming of um, the moment when you're truly floating in darkness, which is the, the title of the book. Um, what a, a spectacular moment with the, the Milky Way rising above you. Um, I think it's such an important book um, in this very difficult time when there are so many people that are fighting so much. We need to really think about being one. You know, you talk about that moment when you're taking off um, for your six-month son, the ISS, and listening to that song, One by, by You Too, and, and what it meant to you at that time. And... I wish that we could all, as a planet, facing something that we're all facing together. None of us are going to come through this virus without facing it together. I wish that we could think a bit more as one. Well, I mean, what I hope is that, you know, this current situation of COVID-19 serves as a wake-up call and a call to action to break down the divisive walls that separate us and, and unify us more. And, and we come out the other end stronger and more unified. Um, <laughs> That's my that's the light that I see at the end of the tunnel. It's so tiny right now because it's hard to see the the the, the light at the end of the tunnel when we don't really have an endpoint. You know, we don't know when this is going to be over. Um, we don't know if we're going to be successful in coming together. But any at this moment in time, at, at any moment in time, but particularly at moments of time when, when there's a crisis, uh, the only way we get through those crises is together is by coming together, not pulling apart. Um, and uh, we are seeing a lot of pulling apart right now, which is really um, making the situation uh, a lot worse. Um, and and it's, it's very obvious when you look around the world of the areas like Australia uh, that have, have come together and, over, and set aside their differences. They haven't said, okay, we don't have any differences anymore. They said, yes, we recognize we have differences, but we're going to overlook those differences till we get through this crisis and then we can, we can pick back up <laughs> if we want where we left off. But, but we need to come together. And, um, and the leadership to do that can come from anywhere. It can be. It doesn't have to come from the top down. It come from. It could come from the bottom up. It could be grassroots, and um, you know that's another 
emerging megatrend is is you know the power of the crowd, right? And um, and one of the things that fuels that is uh, a related megatrend of openness and transparency, right? And um, we're we're in another crisis. We're in an information crisis right now too. And um, that I think is another me- another megatrend <laughs> is is how do we get actual uh, evidence based science based data to make our decisions on when there's so much noise around of all this this um, false stuff that's being circulated because it's so easy now to, to do that. And so, um, right. Well, I think that you also talk a lot about the great transition and I completely agree with you that we're going through a real phase change here, but I think we've been going through that for a while. Um, you know, people, the, the populist sort of movements, the breakdown of globalism, the, you know, all of these trends, this ex- extremism of thought has been going on for a while. And I think about what, for instance, Yuval Noah Harari has talked about in his fantastic books where he says actually um, civilization and society are based on shared intersubjective myths. Yeah, you know, sure. A lot of these things are not real. They're not physical nations and companies and religions and laws. They're not the money. <laughs> right, right. They're, they're constructs that allow us to actually create this shared society. Well, I think a lot of those myths have actually been breaking down for quite some time. You know, the myth that, um, uh, you know, life is going to get better in um, developed countries, um, that the planet will sustain us forever. All of these things, they just don't ring true for most people anymore. And so I think that we're actually coming into an entirely new world order and economics, and hopefully it's going to be a really positive thing. Uh, we've been doing a lot of scenario planning ourselves because we realise that a lot of companies are thinking very myopically about, you know, they're expecting that the old economy of 2019 is coming back. And we're saying, are you crazy? Um, and so building in some bigger mega trends. Um, and we figured that most companies would need to do this. They shouldn't be doubling up. Um, let's actually do this initial scenario planning for them, put it out into the world, and then let them focus on what to do about it. But as we go through these scenario planning trends, there are some very, very scary things that we're seeing. And it looks like we're heading as a world down this process of actually having two big trading blocks, you know, the Chinese and the American European ones. And if you play out where that could go, it's very, very um, troublesome. And so we're looking at all these different scenarios and saying, shouldn't we as a world say there's actually a better scenario out here? And let's proactively get there and do something that's going to be much um, better for for the whole world than going into this very dangerous situation. Yeah. Yeah, That's, uh, (laughs) you know, we're going to have to figure this out. I mean, there's no, we can't go back to the way things were. And um, we have to go back to something a, a little bit more positive, a little bit more sustainable. So, we're kind of in a timeout right now in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of companies uh, are putting things on hold. A lot of companies are, you know, some companies are just completely shut down. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that companies are tr- having to overcome right now. One is, you know, working, vir- having a workforce that's working virtually. Uh, and if not, how do we protect our, protect our people? And so how, how are things changed for you at ExoWorks right, you know, during this, this pandemic, you know, what, because, you know, a lot of companies, when they're 
really faced with an existential threat uh, are just thinking about survival. They're not thinking about, you know, the next quarter. They're just thinking about right now. Um, how do I get through the next week? So, um, but what you're talking about is, is more strategic planning, right? And, and how do we, how do we, how do we change the DNA of a company? So how much, how much uh, bandwidth do companies have right now to listen to a story like that? Or are they all just kind of in survival mode? Well, it's a challenge. And I think that we're actually seeing a long-term trend where you know, morale in a lot of companies was pretty low. A lot of these companies have been through wave after wave of um, what was meant to be transformation um, and restructuring and, and innovation that wasn't really innovation. The people were actually in a way really stressed out before we came into COVID. And then COVID, you know, it's almost like there's this collective PTSD going on. And so it's very hard for people to then sort of get out of that um, fight or flight instinct mode into that long range thinking. And yet this is the perfect time to be doing it because, you know, we do see that typically the companies that are the most successful during the upturns are the ones that pivoted or were started during downturns. Um, we see that 28% you know, of companies have actually um, paused or stopped their innovation spending, which means that anyone who hasn't can just leapfrog over those companies. It's a fantastic time to be innovating. Um, and yet, you know, there's just real indecision out there. And I can completely understand why. But we also need to break down the decision-making processes within these companies. Um, you know, it used to be that there would be a single or maybe a couple of um, decision-makers. Then it was a few more, but they might be from the same division. And then now it's people from all over the company that actually often have very competing views. And so even, you know, well before COVID, we were seeing that just the easiest thing decision to make was to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And we just can't do that in an exponential crisis. We absolutely need to make exponential decisions. Yeah, I, I know. I know one of the things that that ExoWorks really uh, encourages companies to do is, is figure out what their MT, MTP is, right? Their massive transformative purpose. And you know, in a time of in a time of worldwide crisis uh, right now, how 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 have you seen those MTPs changing? Or or I mean, do do, do companies get it more now that <laughs> they can they need some kind of massive transformative purpose? They do, because once they actually instill one and actually live by it, you can make decisions very easily based on it. So whenever there's a tough time, you go, well, which decision will actually meet the MTP more easily? And um, I find that as a CEO myself uh, really helps me in my decision making. But you can actually bring the rest of your organization, all the staff along with you very easily if there's that sense of vision, um, not just a mission statement that says, well, we want to be the best at you know, providing whatever, but how are we truly improving the world? People will buy into that vision. They will put huge amounts of energy into reaching that vision. Um, but as leaders, you know, unless you're actually guiding people with that, um, it's very hard to bring everyone along. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that that is a that's a trend that's been around for a while. But it's it's one that's going I think going to take off exponentially. Is I, I think um, you know having a, a massive transformative purpose is going to be um, 
you know, a key indicator for company for companies that people want to do business with, want to work for, you know, just like just like you said. And I, I mean, it's already the case; it's been the case for a while. But that that's a that's a trend that's going to continue on and, and take off exponentially. I think um, it, it has to. If it doesn't, we're in big trouble. You know, and you know, I, I talk about this great transition and. You know, you could put it in biological terms. There's a there's a great book. It's called New Reality, um, and it's written by Jonathan Salk, who is the son of, of Jonas Salk. Uh, and and Jonas Salk and Jonathan Salk uh, worked a lot on looking at biological systems and how they evolve, right? And there's you know an S curve for a, a biological system in a closed environment, which we're in a closed environment called Earth. And it, you know the, the the population starts out very flat for a long, long time, then it takes off exponentially. And then one of two things happens. Either it, it reach, reaches equilibrium or it comes crashing back down, right? And so we are right at that point uh, where we're at the inflection point, where the acceleration of our growth, you know, the population of the earth stayed very, very flat for, you know, tens of thousands of years or more. Uh, and then right around the time of the industrial revolution, it started shooting up exponentially. Uh, and now it's, you know, you know, it's, we have 7.7 billion people on the planet. And, um, you know, scientists tell us that, that the earth can sustain a, a, a stabilized equilibrium, uh, equilibrium of population of about 10.5 billion people on the planet. So we are either going to reach a stabilized 10.5 billion uh, person population uh, on the planet or the, or the we'll come crashing back down. And so, uh, all of these things, like establishing MTPs, like uh, being a, a net positive for the planet and and society for companies, you know, if that doesn't happen, we're going to come crashing back down, and everybody loses. Even the the point zero zero one percent of the population right now, which is benefiting the most by the the current status quo of the global economy, they're going to lose out too. Everybody's going to lose out, and um, that's something that we need to to really understand um, and and keep our policymakers uh, accountable to that and our companies and businesses accountable to that. And the best way to do that is with, with our wallets and pocketbooks. Um, you know, how, how we invest, how we buy, how we, how we you know, who we deal with, that, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I know that, that, that you and ExoWorks is really uh, working very diligently to, to steer companies in that direction. So I think it's gonna make a big difference. Well, we also work a lot in the emerging markets <clears throat> and it's been really scary looking at some of this scenario planning because if you do end up with those two trading blocks, the incentives from the rich countries and, you know, I actually looked at which countries would most likely end up in which block, you do actually get this kind of rich world, poor world um, sort of blocks and, um, you know, we need um, consumers uh, and, you know, cheap um, production. So it would be a very strange world, but the incentives from the rich world to actually support the, um, the poorer countries may actually evaporate under those circumstances. More worrisome also is the incentive to pay off debt in the other block might disappear. And at that point, you could just get liquidity drying up, um, you know, in, in a way that would make 2008 look tiny. Uh, then you have governments stepping into the breach and then often authoritarian governments doing so. And right. so, you know, the, the incentive to help countries that are going through huge amounts of death, um, hopefully not a huge amount of disabled population who have had COVID and then recovered, 
you know, we, we need to be thinking very differently about how we're going to meet some of those SDG goals from the UN uh, if we go down those sorts of paths. And uh, businesses have a huge role to play in that. You know, it's wonderful to see the companies that we've been working with in Africa and Asia and um, South America uh, really doing things to support the local communities, um, see where there's corruption and um, and other problems going on, and really try and use data and um, you know true knowledge about what's going on to actually fix that. Um, to look at how um, communities can actually sustain themselves with um, very sustainable farming, uh, you know, using technology like drones and things to really improve. Um, what's being done across those agricultural areas. There is so much that can be done. I know you've been really involved in, in water uh, technologies in the past. There is so many uh, wonderful areas that that can be improved, but we need to actually allow the large companies to bring in those technologies, not crush them as they do that, and then get those things out at scale. Yeah, and I, I mean, you, you painted a pretty bleak picture before uh, on where we could potentially go. And, you know, right now, and certainly before COVID, we're heading right down that path. That's exactly down the path. But from day one at COVID, when COVID started, I've, I've seen this as an opportunity. I've seen this as an opportunity to get a benefit for the tremendous price that we're already paying. You know, we're paying a tremendous price as far as humans, human suffering and human life and, and, and financial and economic and, and everything else. We're paying this horrendous price, but we have an opportunity to get a benefit for that price and to, to see this as an opportunity to steer ourselves into a different direction. Um, and so do you see, is, are any of the companies that, that you're working with realizing this, that this is their opportunity, this is their opportunity to make a big pivot and, and make, hopefully put us on the right track? Absolutely. Yes, um, at, right at the beginning of COVID, I was absolutely petrified that the work that we had done, creating all these new initiatives would just fall apart during this time. And consistently, those companies are actually accelerating them um, because they realise that they're the future of the companies. Um, but more than that, they're actually working on some really um, social impact, wonderful things. You know, we see these companies that are pivoting to quickly get incredibly cheap um, ventilators built and out into the world, um, companies that have pivoted completely to making PPE, um, companies that are saying, right, well, we realise that there are suddenly, you know, a million people out in the desert who are usually building the buildings in Dubai and they're in horrible conditions. How do we go and solve some of those problems and make sure that some of the corruption that was stealing all the food and, and um, resources that they need is going to be fixed? So um, the companies that we've worked with that have brought in this massive transformative purpose, we're consistently seeing just do wonderful things. So how, how do we deal with the folks, the, the cynical folks that say that, you know, we're, <laughs> We're kind of, we're we're going down the only path we can go down to because of human nature that that people are inherently selfish, that um the you know the, the it's totally natural that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because of you know some type of Darwinian you know natural selection going on, and um that you know what you're asking of people. Uh, you know, if, if, if like for massive uh, transformative purpose, for instance, you know, 
Yeah, massive transformative purpose. As long as the sh the shareholders are increasing their value, you know, at you know ten x or whatever whatever it is that their expectations are, that that is the, that is what human nature is all about. And uh, you know, you're not going to change human nature, and and therefore, you know, we're doomed to failure. That's a tough question. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you look at a lot of these companies, most of them are very commodified in what they um, are offering. And the only reason that they actually grew and therefore had that ability to get rich uh, was that there were billions of people who had more spending power over the last number of decades. There are so many things that actually were predicated on the world improving. And so, yes, it, it, I can be as pessimistic as well and, and really worry about the inequality. But I think that when these companies actually realize what has truly underpinned um, their ability or the CEO's ability to become mega wealthy, um, we see a different picture. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, that's optimistic. <laughs> I, hope, <laughs> I hope it's not um, unduly optimistic. No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think I, I, share, I share your opinion there. Um, and, you know, I was just saying that because it's, it's good to, it's good to have have an optimistic out outlook because, um, you know, the the reason I think we have so many problems, uh, especially in the U.S. right now, is because we're operating on a fear-based mentality. Um, that, you know, motivation comes from from it can, people can be motivated from a whole bunch of different reasons, but the two main reasons, uh, one is fear, and the other one is on wonder, and uh, fear is is what we're is, is predominant. Uh, it's, it's probably predominant in the world right now, not just in the U.S. Um, and I, I, I know you're in Sydney right now, but you're, but you're correct me if I'm wrong. But you know, most of your time is spent in New York, so, so, um, so you understand very well the the, the U.S. issues. Um, so, you know, it's good to it's good to keep an optimistic outlook and to and to uh, look for those situations of awe and wonder to inspire us and to motivate us. And there's and we're surrounded with awe and wonder constantly. And uh, it, even in the face of the, these crises, even even you know, if you look at some of these you know selfless acts of you know healthcare workers and frontline workers and the people who pick up the garbage and deliver the mail and and you know are putting themselves at risk to to keep to keep our civilization running basically uh um you know i think that's that's all inspiring enough and we should i think take courage from that uh that we can work together that we can you know set aside our differences um and uh yeah i think uh, i think what you're doing is, is leading us along that way Thank you. Well, I, I think we recognize both of those very much in our business. So we recognize the fear that comes from we don't understand why these other companies are doing so well. Um, it's just so opaque to people. And so to actually illuminate how it is working and actually just give a real methodology and um, you know, time pox process that really works, that helps people get over it. Um, but secondly, the first thing that we actually do when we come in and work with a new team is try and build that awe and wonder. So we do a big presentation um, 
that is a bit of a shock and awe about how fast the world is changing, but also how exciting it is. Uh, the second thing that we do with them is to actually ask them to imagine the future and go through thinking, well, what if, with a number of different questions. And as soon as they start to think 10 years out, what would we like the world to look like? They get so inspired and that then very easily sort of forms into that um, massive transformative purpose. We do it both for the company, maybe also a project, but also personally with people. And as soon as they start to decide, well, why am I here? What do I want to do? How do I maybe want to improve the lives of maybe just my closest circle or maybe it's millions or billions of lives? Um, then you get this level of engagement, people will put in so much effort. You know, we, we hear from um, the leaders of these projects before the sprints, yeah, it's gonna be hard to get some of the people engaged. Well, it is not once you go through that initial process. And then as you sort of start to see the, the um, effects ripple out through the companies, as they start to bring other people in the, into this ideology, I get really excited. I get really optimistic about what can be done. But it starts with that grassroots level of making people feel capable and inspired and believing that there's something bigger than themselves that they truly want to be part of. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the ways to do that is by having like nested MTPs, right? Have nested massive transformative purposes. And, and I mean, you've read, you've read the new book floating in darkness and you know that I talk a lot about making course corrections, right? And of course, in a course correction, you need two pieces of information. You need uh, your, your present state vector where you are right now and where you want to go and when you want to be there. Right. So you need, you need a state vector and a target. And so part of, I think our problem as a civilization is we don't have a target and, and, we don't even have a good state vector. We don't really know where we are right now because we don't listen to the data. We don't listen to the experts and the scientists. And, you know, we discredit the, the best available information that we have because, you know, of other reasons, you know, political or whatever. And so part of, uh, of an MTP is creating the target, right? I mean, and I think when I talked about nested systems, I, I think, or nested MTPs, I think everybody should, we should, every, all 7.7 .7 billion people on the, or however many people there are, should all have the same overarching uh, MTP. And that's to create a restorative, positive world where everybody can thrive, everybody can uh, achieve their full potential, and uh, all of this can be done within the, the planetary boundaries of our, our, our planet, within the limits, of the, the limits of our life support system, in you know, in in a, a interdependent way with every other living thing thing on the planet, right? And so that everybody should have that MTP overarching, and then whether you're an individual, or an organization, or a corporation, you know, your individual MTP should fit within that nested overarching MTP. And that goes right to the, to the on wonder part. If we're all marching towards this vision and, and we should, you know, we should pick a year, you know, pick a year and pick and hire the best, you know, <laughs> people from Hollywood or whatever to, to paint this picture of what the world would look like, uh, inspire that on and wonder in everybody and every company and everything. And, 
And then you can backcast the roadmap to get there. And then the steps become clear. But that's not what we do. You know, even the SD, even the SDGs, that's not a visionary feature. That's the homework assignment. Those are the chores that we have to do to get to the visionary future. What's missing is the visionary future. And I think uh, what you're doing with ExoWorks and, and creating those MTPs and, and building those platforms of awe and wonder, I think are, are really uh, leading us in that, in that direction. So thanks. Thank you. And so is your book. So I really highly recommend to everyone on this call that they read the book and, and talk about it because it is the start to exactly what you're talking about, that vision. It is saying, here's a human being that has um, had struggles and temptations and all sorts of things and just done incredible things. It is a book about a life well lived, one that is not only just extraordinary achievements um, from a career um, and, you know, everything that people want to be when they grow up, but also a life well lived in terms of great loves, the love that you have for your wife and your boys, um, the deep friendships, um, the love of the planet and um, just so many wonderful things uh, of yeah, a life truly well lived. And when you can read that kind of inspiration and you see the bigger picture of what we could all be achieving together in this world. I think it's a, an incredibly important starting place for where we all need to be going. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I really appreciate that. Uh, and it means a lot to me that, you, that you're reading the, the, the manuscript. And uh, for everybody out there, um, check out uh, exo.works, exo.works. <laughs> If I spelled that right, uh, right. Check, out the, check out the work that Emily's uh, doing uh, with ExoWorks. It's, it's amazing. Um, uh, look them up on social media. Do you want to share any of those uh, handles? Uh, ExoWorks uh, is the main one on um, Twitter and uh, Instagram. Okay, yeah, follow along. And, and Emily, thank you so much for, for your, your wisdom, your insight, and for everything you're doing to help make life on our planet as beautiful as our, as our world looks from space. And, and thanks to everybody who tuned in and, and uh, comments and questions. And uh, uh, just because we're going to end this transmission now, that doesn't mean that you, we, we uh, won't read the questions and, and, and comments. So please keep them coming. If you're watching this after, after the fact uh, on the videotaped version, then, uh, then put some comments in there. And we'll do the best we can to answer them. And uh, Emily, thank you so much. Thank you, Ron. And uh, we will see we will see everybody uh, next week. All the best, everyone. See ya. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective, and thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space.